At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to learn about Just Leadership USA, and it's a long overdue conversation we should have with this organization and its president uh, and CEO. You know, people work in the area of holding the criminal justice system, the carceral system accountable, but few have the wealth of experience that our guest has. She was at the Department of Justice during the Obama administration where she served as a senior policy advisor in the areas of corrections and reentry. Uh, and she also holds a master's degree in criminal justice, uh, and she's a licensed clinical addictions counselor. Um, in Ohio, in Hamilton County, she was a founding director of reentry uh, in uh, Hamilton County in Ohio and their board of county commissioners. So she knows she's an expert on these matters and she's someone who is very well qualified. I think we all should be thankful that we have people like her working in this space. And what Just Leadership USA uh, has been doing is advocating for those in our incarcerated community and our reentry communities. We welcome to make it plain, Deanna Hoskins. Deanna, how are you? Welcome. I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for having me, I'm good. It, it's a it's a pleasure to have an honor to have you. As a matter of fact, tell our audience a little bit more about Just Leadership USA and and its mission. So, Just Leadership USA is the only national organization that has been founded by and operated by formerly incarcerated people. Um, our founder created Just Leadership on the principle that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but typically furthest from resource and power to do anything about it. So we were, the country was having these conversations around criminal justice reform, reentry, but missing from those conversations were the people most impacted by that issue. So thus created Just Leadership to invest in people who were already leaders in their community to give them the additional tools and resources so they can step into not only having a seat at those tables, but in most cases, we're actually saying creating those tables now and leading those tables. So our mission at Just Leadership 
is to actually focus on and amplify the power and voices of directly impacted people so that they can change those policies that are oppressing and marginalizing them in their communities. Keep it simple. We want to empower and elevate those voices that have been unheard. What would you say is the current state? President gives State of the Union, but we should ask, what is the state of the carceral state? these days. In other words, um, we know we have been talking about mass incarceration, fighting against it. Is Are, are things getting better at all? Is, is there beginning to be a shift or are we still in an uphill fight? We're in an uphill fight. And the reason I'll say we're in an uphill fight, because everyone wants to look at the system as the problem and not the foundation of what the system was built on. Let's be honest. This is a racial justice conversation. Um, and we keep pointing to criminal justice, which is just a catch basin of all the other failed systems that we have in our communities. Substance abuse, mental health, education, um, access to employability, living wages, poverty, all of those things that has created an environment. Criminal justice is not one of those systems. It's the catch basin to people who fall in, through those various systems. So when I walk into rooms, we're really pushing the envelope. We're no longer allowing people to get away from the pink elephant. The criminal justice system was built on the backs and the abolishment of slavery, which is why we have the 13th Amendment Clause. Slavery is not legal until a period of incarceration. Um, and what we saw during that time was the creation of the misdemeanor system, that slave labor still wanted, needed to be utilized, so we started creating black codes and different things of that nature. So I, I really like to talk about it from the foundation. In this moment of racial unrest, on racial justice, you can't exclude the criminal justice system. And what we're starting to see in policies are that people want to piecemeal our liberation. You didn't piecemeal it when you took it away or when you had, um, hindered us. I always go back to the 94 crime bill. Sweeping bill with sweeping policies. Now you want to try to undo it in pieces. Give us our liberation the way you took it away, right? We're not saying people shouldn't be held accountable. There is an accountability. It's how we utilize the system of incarceration. It's how we dehumanize people when they're in there. It's how we don't pay attention that most people that walk through the door are already experiencing trauma. Incarceration is a period of trauma. And then we release to say, go be successful without ever even addressing the trauma that led to the initial incarceration. And I'm sure you, like many of us, I'm certain you do, find it galling when we separate days like April 20th. All right. And how many of our people are have been incarcerated and remain incarcerated, even those who are out lives forever, forever altered for a, a, a drug or whatever people want to call it, but <laughs> that they were locked up for in the context of nonviolent offenses. And now other people are turning into businesses and making money off of it. The same thing that locked us up and took away our lives. Other folks who don't look like us have figured out a way to, to, to drive capitalism off of it. I mean, that, that has to, and I'm sure that affects those you work with every day, those who are in this in this in this realm, those who've had that experience. That that's something. 
you know, thank you for that, Reverend Mark. So my saying to that every time I walk into a room that's talking about legalizing marijuana, the first thing I say is that there is no way you're getting ready to legalize and allow white men to get rich off of what black men been going to prison for. And then exclude the black men because of that criminal record from participating in that economic, new economy you're creating, right? There's no way. The one thing I want to applaud that I applaud Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo for, he refused to sign uh, marijuana into legalization in New York until there were policies that expunged the record of those who had actually been incarcerated and allowed them and gave them an advantage to participate in this. So one of the things that has happened in New York around the legalization of marijuana is there was a period that nobody else could apply for the licensures to run retail stores, cultivation, farming, before formerly incarcerated. They had a special period all to themselves. And then they created the funding source to help them obtain the retail space that they may not have to pay the rent on that location for six months to a year. That's what you call equity, right? That's what you call really entrenching equity into a system that has continued to demarginalize and dehumanize people who don't have, you know, don't come from social economic statuses and standards. That's what we have to do. We're we're pushing um, legalization on a federal level because I don't care what states have it. If you walk into an airport and you got it on you, you're going to be arrested, right? But literally talking about expunging, getting rid of those records, we have to, you cannot take what we have been incarcerated for. Some people still serving life for marijuana what we've been incarcerated for, now make it legal, and you're not going to look back and course correct the <laughs> harm that you entrenched on us. You yeah. can't do it. And I see you you just enabled me some more. I probably should have left that alone. Because <laughs> look, no, for real. I mean, we applaud what the Biden administration did the other day and all the initiatives they put in place, incentivization for businesses and the government to hire the formerly incarcerated, create jobs. But at some point, somebody needs to say, just like you said, this industry, though, that folks are running around legalized and it's popular now and in vogue. A lot of that should start right there, because, I mean, we're looking. I mean, you you know, the numbers better than I do. We're probably looking at a large percentage. I, I mean, is it a disproportional percentage of folk coming home that were locked up? under old marijuana laws? Is is that pretty much I, I the think, I think it is. Uh, okay. I, I don't quite know the numbers, but if it's not the main reason they were incarcerated, it's part of their criminal record in some kind of way. And I'll give you an example of how crazy the marijuana laws were. Here where I live and born and raised in Ohio, you have uh, different police departments, right? Same county, but you have townships um, and different things of that nature. And there was a time where the major city, the urban core, Cincinnati, changed their law around marijuana. And if you got caught with marijuana in the city limits, it was a misdemeanor charge. But I could be in one community on one side of the street. It's the city of Cincinnati. But if I walk across the crosswalk, I'm in a township. And if I get stopped in the township, I get a ticket, a $75 ticket that I pay and keep it moving for the same amount of marijuana, right? And what it did in the city, the urban core, 
because marijuana was a viable economic stimulus in certain communities. It was a re recreation that certain people in certain communities enjoyed. You saw an abundance of African-Americans from impoverished communities, what we call the hood, being arrested for misdemeanor charges. Technically, the marijuana allowed me to stop you and search you, which ultimately might have led to other things. But you saw an abundance of people with marijuana charges, minor marijuana charges on their record because that city utilized hometown rules and changed their local legislation, right? Um, and let's not, and I'm a, I want to be clear about that. It was an African-American city council person who led that initiative, right? Not understanding the impact um, that it would have, but because of his law enforcement background, saw that that was a need to control our communities. And my question is always, why are laws always created that criminalizes us when people, why do we have to be controlled? That's slavery mentality of controlling a certain population and oppressing them. And so what are the tools, you know, with all of the things that happen, although we're starting to see, even with video cameras um, of killings and different things, it's not holding up in court. But there became a time where that wasn't popular. So what was the way to still oppress people, expand the range and the net of criminal justice and let's capture them all? And, and, and that beget our greater contact with the police, mm -hmm. greater tension with the police, greater you know conflict and, and some of the other the deaths of innocent people at the hands of police behind silly stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so when folks, you know, ladies and gentlemen, when folks say defund and people have a visceral reaction, you got to think about it from, from a holistic point of view. That that's just a term. Yeah. But, but as, as sister Deanna, Deanna is suggesting, you know, when you have these laws applied differently to us and not to others, that's, that's part of defund too, because, we shouldn't be in contact with the police, um, you know, in, in such a prolific way. That shouldn't be happening all the time. Um, your your own training. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned a, 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 an African-American did that. You mentioned 94 crime bill. We, you know, some of us did that, too, because folks were scared of crack. Didn't know what it was. Everybody's back. And, oh, we should have done that. But you remember folk went crazy about that. Um, but something else I'm sure you would agree. And, and, and we, you know, we've got to deal with this even with some of our own people, especially. We know we have loved ones, family members and whatnot with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Y'all, we got to stop calling the police when a family member and a loved one's having a mental health crisis. That's another, another thing that we need to deal with. And we know that when people get incarcerated on the inside too, that system is lacking in terms of, of resources and, and help and treatment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, uh, thank you for bringing that up because th that's huge. But we also have to think about what I always tell people in the African-American community, getting therapy or seeing a counselor was weak. There's a stigma. So therefore, we have allowed the mental health to escalate in individuals till it gets to a control, a point where we are even terrified of our own loved ones when they're having an episode, right? But that episode where we called the police wasn't the first episode. There were instances of that. We never sought the help to deal with that trauma because we haven't been giving that. It's been a stigma in our community. 
So again, um, what I do love about what's going on here in Cincinnati is recovering addicts, formerly incarcerated people have been trained as mental health specialists and they're part of the police department now. So they're showing up. The police may show up, but the first person to interact is a person with de-escalation skills. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge episode where someone was really having a mental health episode. And one of my friends, dear friends, who's a mental health social worker, was able to de-escalate the situation, get the person to agree to go to the hospital to get help. But it was that first attempt. But because we have to be honest, um, African-American people are a threat to certain people. And this is the analogy. You said two things that I really want to touch on. One, you talked about our communities are over-policed, right? Our community, and this is questions I ask, same police department, you know, in Cincinnati, we have what we call over the Rhine, and then we have Indian Hills. Same school system, Cincinnati Public, those schools have air conditioning, these don't barely have books. Same police department, they respond different, you don't see them in Indian Hills driving around, you don't see a car, anything. But so here's a situation. My son, and we're from over the Rhine, and my colleague's son, they're from Indian Hills, both steal our car. We both call the police. My son, my car is found. My car is impounded. My son's taken to Juvie Hall, where I have to go to court the next day to get it. Her car is found. They park her car, take her son to the police station, and call her to let him come get to come get it. Later on, they both are together again as adults and they commit a crime and they go to prison. We have this tool called a risk assessment tool. Her son gets the score low because he's been connected to the community. He came from a socioeconomic and all those juvenile interactions never hit his record. So he scores low and has access to all the programs in prison, all the early release programs. My son scores high. Because every time he interacted with the police, he went to Juvie Hall. The inner city schools have more police officers than they do social workers. So their interaction is there. My son scores high and is eliminated from accessing certain programs because of his high risk. Black and brown people will never score a low risk on a risk assessment tool. Simply how our communities are over-policed, right? So so I want to get that, that when you call the police... You got to remember, people who are responding from the police department are people who all their life, their parents told them, stay out of that community. Stay away from those people. They join the police force. And guess what the police force do? First thing they do is put them on third shift in that same community they've been trained all their life that those people were dangerous. So soon as they have an encounter, what is the first thing they do in a nervous reaction? Shoot the kill even sometimes in the back when the person is walking away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what Deanna Hoskins, folks, again, is just explained, and, and, I, and I talk about this a lot, uh, when it comes to the issue of over-policing and, and all of these types of things, these issues are addressed locally. You all heard her say, formerly incarcerated mental health experts. All right, so that's a decision that's made in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. We will not tweet away over policing you know so in our local community see somebody listening to this here's that where do you live you need to 
organized politically locally because police are governed locally to make that happen in your jurisdiction. When it, that's what about I think it, we have to do. Yeah. If we're going to have real change, it ain't going to happen with the president because let's be honest, whatever, there's a difference between state and federal. State. That's why states have governors because there was a decision made that the federal government should not manage states. Your governor manages your state. So when I tell people, all you can look to the president and what they do federally is that what can you use as an example to take home? One of the things we didn't use as an example under the Obama administration is the number of clemencies for nonviolent charges that he did on a federal level. We didn't push our governors local, right? We was too busy applauding our president who was trying to be a role model. But as advocates, we're like, yeah, he's doing a great thing. No, because your people in your state still incarcerated. You didn't go advocate your governor to right. replicate that. But right. here's the thing. Let a Republican president get in and over-police, over-incarcerate, and watch every governor, Republican governor repeat it. They follow suit. We don't follow suit. We don't understand. We just want to applaud the right now, right? We, we don't carry through. And it's also, it's also manifested when we don't... Uh when we don't vote down ballot either. Exactly. And people, everybody came out for the president, which is a great thing. Man, your biggest, your most right. powerful voting instrument is your local. That's right. That's Do right. you understand Chicago threw out a prosecutor because they organized underground? Yeah. And was like, okay, you're not for us. You don't look like us. And we're going to get you out of office. And that's what they did in Pennsylvania and Chicago. Yeah, you know, that that's powerful. So again, folks, you know, uh, the carceral system is is governed at the state level. Okay, and you got state prisons. Mm -hmm. uh, the police are usually governed at the municipal level, sometimes the state as well, so, so that's important. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I do a lot of work with with Reverend Barber. Mm -hmm. uh, you 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 have a new colleague, and, and and he'll he'll agree with me. So you know we've been to West Virginia a lot, and when you go to West Virginia, people you know talk about their problems. They're very open about it, and and the opioid epidemic, 
And and you listen to these stories, Deanna, and you empathize. You know, I'm down there and I'm listening. So, wow, that's opioid. But I said, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm empathizing with y'all, which is fine. I mean, that's a terrible situation. But where was the empathy for us? You know, it, it, it's like what you said about the difference between uh, Indian Hills and over the ride. Mm -hmm. Crack and powder, whatever. Opioids. Oh, well, you know, as that's, that's a health issue, you get counseling or what have you. We all black folk and other people of color all got locked up. And, and that is what has made the mass that exists in the carceral state. Mm -hmm. has you know, it, it's funny you say that because me being a person, being in long-term recovery, it's coming up on 23 years, um, who struggled with crack and cocaine. And my criminal activity stemmed from my substance abuse issue. And that's my conversation. Um, you know, there was no major investment in treatment beds. Our kids were stripped from us in children's services and adopted out, right? A, a lot of the residual that we're seeing with the youth are kids who actually had to fend for themselves because the system didn't have anything, a safety net in place. They removed the parent with the substance abuse because of the crack addiction in criminal justice, created this whole other system. But now the face of this thing done changed. It's, it's suburban housewife. And we have millions of dollars coming into our communities to provide treatment for those individuals. I'm like, where did this money come from that it wasn't back in the day when we had a crack epidemic, right? But not only that, I remember during my own active addiction, you know, your biggest thing was not getting caught with any drug paraphernalia on you. And I look now that people are ODing with a needle in their arm, police is coming, they get to go to the hospital, they get, they get to decide if they want to go to treatment. Their drug paraphernalia is on them and you're not criminalizing them? We, you know how many African-American people have drug paraphernalia charges on them that they cannot get off? So just the fact that the face of it, what this country continues to show us over and over again is that when it is impacting those that they humanize, we will fund it. We will go out of our way. We will create task forces. When it comes to the individuals that we continue to dehumanize that's only considered three-fourths three-thirds of a whole of a human today in the Constitution still, we have no true investment in them. And we have seen that over and over again. I don't know how more blatant it can be, but when you look at the opiate versus crack, and if even if you're not charging them, my question is, so when are you going to go back and expunge ours? See, even when you make the changes in the system to do better, you still got to clean up the past, but because the past impacted us, the marijuana, the crack world, we don't get those records expunged and cleaned up and get an opportunity as what's being handed out now. We're in the, in the middle of Just Leadership USA's 20, 2021 to 2024 roadmap, aren't we? Tell us a little bit about that and, and what's on that get a, get in that lane with you. So what Just Leadership did, of course, people were like, you're an organization ran by formerly incarcerated, you're training, you're working, you're elevating the voices of those most impacted. Why aren't you working on sentencing reform? Why aren't you working on different types of reform? I believe everyone has to have a lane. And I always say, if you find your lane and you go at your own speed limit, you won't have traffic, right? 
So for directly impacted people, what was missing was what are the policies? What are the strategies where the rubber hits the road, right? What are the things that the federal government controls that actually can roll downhill to have an impact on the lives of those who've been impacted by the criminal justice system? So when this administration was elected, we immediately said, we want to present them with our own roadmap. Formerly incarcerated always has been a part of other people's agenda. We want to create our own agenda. And what we did, we looked at every policy around basic human needs, housing. Housing, you know, local housing authority will tell people you can't come into public housing because you have a criminal record. And that's based on the federal government. Well, no, the federal government only bars two criminal convictions. Everything else that you created that's 15 pages is locally implemented, right? But what the federal government did was say that local housing authorities have the discretion to actually add. So we are asking them, remove the word discretion. If they're using federal funds, which are taxpayer dollars, they should have to follow the federal rules. Stop giving localities discretion because certain localities, you don't find housing rules and policies the same because every housing authority had a discretion to add what they wanted. We talked about, most people don't know from the 94 crime bill, USDA has a clause in there that says, if you were convicted of a drug trafficking charge, you are not eligible for SNAP 10 of benefits. Governors waived out of it, but it's still in legislation. So you can get a governor tomorrow who will walk in and say, uh, I want to recall that waiver. And everyone in your state who has ever been convicted of a drug offense, if they find themselves homeless, if they found themselves during COVID without a job, would not have been able to get SNAP, TANF, Booth's um, benefits, which are known as food stamps. So we ask for things like that, that are continuously to be on a policy that create a hindrance for us. What came out of Biden's announcement um, yesterday was agencies announced some things, and it was part of Just Leadership's roadmap. We asked the Small Business Association to remove the clause in their 7A and 504 loan programs for people with criminal backgrounds. They did that yesterday. We asked the federal government to increase employment of formerly incarcerated, the Fair Chance to Compete Act, which actually passed in 2019, has to be implemented by July. We asked them, don't leave it to the federal government hiring authorities, Office of Personnel Management, come out with some regulations that each federal hiring authority has to follow around that ban the box and fair opportunities to compete. They did that. Um, you know, we, we asked for some of these things. We asked for the expansion of the Second Chance Fellow, which was there under the Obama administration, eliminated under Trump. Not only did they bring it back for one, they actually have six formerly incarcerated people working in senior policy positions within the government, Department of Education, Department of Justice. But the one thing I want to hit on that is huge, when First Step Act passed in 2018 as the most historical criminal justice reform, I still push back on it. It was not funded. It was just a piece of paper. Um, some things happened, right? Some retroactivity to a bill that had already passed for the crack to cocaine disparities. There's still a disparity, but it was retroactive. Um, they, they put into legislation what was already in policy, no shackling of pregnant women. Um, it was there, but they still gave discretion. But our biggest argument for me was the risk assessment tool that I felt First Step Act was created for a certain population of people who might find themselves in federal prison. It, it, it went against all research. It stated 
that programs and your investment should be invested in those who are medium to low risk. Medium to low risk people based on science don't need your programs because you actually may increase their risk. It's the people who are high risk. Remember, we talked about the black and brown people who score high risk, who have a high risk to recidivate. You just first step back, excluded them from those programs that actually give early time release. But this president announced yesterday a unique partnership between Department of Justice and Department of Labor of new money, $145 million for the Bureau of Prison to create what is known as incarceration to workforce pipeline. That includes training, educational opportunities, connections to community resources and employers to ensure that people are leaving the Bureau of Prison with proper job training of what the market is, but also the ability to connect. Most people didn't know second chance dollars, while they come out of the federal government, they were meant for states. So Bureau of Prison people who were released couldn't participate in any of those second chance programs. Another gap of how we operate. So now those individuals do have funding that is going out, needle in a haystack of the amount of people, but it is a start of a brand new money committed to ensure a, a continuum of reentry when they're released. I applaud them for that because that was a bill that was taunted as the best criminal justice reform, but no money was put behind it. And finally, they came up with brand new money that doesn't take from other states and actually focus on that population. Fascinating work you're doing and, and fascinating what you've been able to accomplish. I, I want to lift up a couple of things and folks in this roadmap, and you can see it at jlusa.org, jlusa.org, short-term, mid-term, long-term. A couple of short-term things I want to ask about. Um, the appointment of a directly impacted individual as the criminal justice reentry czar in the White House and the Domestic Policy Council, has that happened? That has not. and. One of the things that I challenged this week um, when they called us about this announcement coming out was we should have strategically been a part of that conversation with the implementation of these policies. They're good. Don't get me wrong. We applaud you for that. But don't call us after the fact to check it and support it when we weren't at the table to create it. That's yeah. what we're pushing for. And that's why we need a reentry czar to help, because while people have good intentions, they still treat us as second-class citizens in some manner. And, and you know, with all the, the good things that happen and the encouragement from the White House for there to be, you know, that, that pipeline, I mean, the White House could have modeled that behavior. Yes. Could, still could by having that, that person with that experience uh, a directly impacted individual uh, in the White House. Yes. Okay, here's another one. I, I want you to educate our audience about this. Order directing the use of humanizing language across all federal agencies. So what do we mean when we say humanizing language? So we're talking about the dehumanizing language of ex-offender, convict, inmate, offender. We are people. We are and people is the operative word. We are people who have had some kind of contact with the criminal justice system. And what happened under the Obama administration, there was a memo that went out through the government wide that we would no longer use dehumanizing language. We would use persons incarcerated, persons recently released. When I was there and the Trump administration came in, they rescinded that. And every grant um, application that I had to put out to the public for second chance that had dehumanizing language um, had to be reinforced back in there. 
and I remember pushing back because what, what I realized the White House didn't know, it was personal to me. Um, I was now working with an administration that was dehumanizing me as a human, as a formerly incarcerated person and saying I had to live with that label of offender. That was my past. And I always use this, uh, Reverend Mark, we don't judge pastors on where they been. We judge them on where they going. As people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system, when do I get to leave that behind me and demonstrate to you that I got more years on this side of the road than I had on that side of the road? but I can never get rid of that felon conviction or that offender status or prisoners. Those are very dehumanized. You are actually labeling somebody based on their situation and not who they are as a human. So we're asking for a memo to come back out that actually strip all of those federal communications, those RFPs of that dehumanizing language that was enforced on the previous administration. Some other highlights, folks, in, in the midterm, um, the, the abolition, of course, of the death penalty, the abolition of solitary confinement. We touched on this expansion of medical and mental uh, health care. Um, speaking of language, um, redefining homelessness so that people leaving prison are eligible for HUD homeless programs. That's important. Yeah, so there's a definition of chronic homeless that all your housing dollars in every state come from federal funds. And it is I benchmarked for chronic homeless. And the definition of chronic homeless was expanded under the McKinley Act to include people leaving overcrowded facilities. My argument has always been that's a jail and a prison all day long. But localities define it as a shelter or different things of that nature, right? They do not want to define it as what it was meant under the Obama administration when it was added. So therefore, we're asking HUD to redefine and be explicit. We can no longer be undercover because people interpret it the way they are. We need let we need it to be explicit. So what was announced yesterday was that HUD is doing a six-month review of all of their policies and definitions. Very important. And and you know, just on, on this language. Um, people, um, and I, I want to say it right. So what we want to say now, we don't want to say ex-offend anymore. We want to say, do, do we say um, people who have been released? Um, is 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 that? I mean, what is what is the the best way? It's about the former, right? Formerly incarcerated, incarcerated. had people. contact. It's people. People, people. People. And see, that's why, folks, when you see people still running around saying slaves, when we've started saying enslaved people mm-hmm. or enslaved persons, see, that's so, you know, look out, folks, around still calling, you know, you and us slaves, y'all. That's another point. Uh, uh, speaking of which, just leadership is bad, y'all. They, they are demanding that the the repeal for the repeal of the 13th amendment's conditional exception permitting involuntary servitude for incarcerated people uh pretty much saying you can you know slavery is abolished except for punishment for a crime that that should not say that so deanna hoskins is not really being metaphorical when she says this is akin to slavery that's actually in the u.s constitution that Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul run around caring with themselves. That's th- that language is in there. So that's and then of course, as 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 always, you know, 
and and this is real none of this is a is coincidental mass incarceration uh begets mass voter suppression mm-hmm. and so just leadership is also of course calling for the end of felony disenfranchisement correct yes you know and one of the evident things that i think everybody should pay attention to is all of the disenfranchisement laws redlining that has taken place in the last two years um my colleague desmond mead led the um, amendment four down in florida and that restored the voting rights to 1.4 million people and immediately the state put up what we call a poll tax they can't vote if they haven't paid their fines and fees and different things still continuing my incarceration has nothing to do with me exercising my right to vote or who should be representing me, right? But what we saw, and we continue to see, uh, and I don't have the number, there was a mass amount of voter disenfranchisement laws passed across this country that people who sit in Capitol Hill are trying to hold on to their seat. You can't let those people vote, right? Not on here was another thing that you know I brought to people's attention, the census. The census, prisons are in very rural area, and the count of the census of people on the census gives the power to those individuals and their representation in D.C. So how does, when you look at the representation, you might want to ask yourself, how does this rural area have two people sitting up in Capitol Hill? Because they counted the prison population. They counted it for that county. They didn't count it for the county where the individual came from, which was the urban core. So what has started to happen with mass incarceration, the urban core's actual representation is diminished and more rural representation where the prisons are built are actually having the power that is making decisions for us, right? And not only that, those rural areas, each person gets funding is attached to funding. So now the rural areas get the funding for the next two years for that person who was incarcerated in that prison, but that person's back in your urban core, which is actually extracting from all the recreation systems, the education system. Those are dollars that fund that. We are being stripped because of mass incarceration in those prisons sit. Those dollars have now went to those rural counties and we no longer have those investments in people that we had in the urban core. You, you know that that's the same formula, isn't it? That established the the Senate apportionment and and electoral college. So yes. states that that had us enslaved, you know, they had the three fifths. Yep. That's why you know they disproportionately have you know they have the same number of senators as the largest state. They have electoral college votes. So it's no longer three fifths of those enslaved. It's a hundred percent of those living under the 13th amendment and incarcerated yeah 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 we we, sh- we shouldn't have got together they're not going they, they didn't want that to happen we shouldn't have, we, this shouldn't happen we shouldn't have done this it should have never happened it should have never happened the lord him or this is uh uh I, i'm she's she's fine i'm gasoline yeah we know they're not gonna let this we they ain't gonna let us do this again okay so uh, <laughs> no this this is great folks we want to invite you uh to to learn more at jlusa.org and get involved yes. uh, uh um let me ask this question as and this is powerful that this is an organization these are these are folks who who have are formerly incarcerated persons these are impacted people 
how can people listening get involved, especially those who are impacted, who are some of our listeners? Definitely go to our website, sign up for our newsletters. We have trainings. We're always looking for communities. What I like to tell people is we're a national organization with a local impact. So we come in, we actually are about focused on training marginalized and oppressed communities of how you organize, how you address the issues that are oppressing your community. Go to our website. We take supporters. We can't do this alone. And people always ask me, how can I help you? Your only job is to help me kick open the doors of the rooms I can't get in. But once we get in, give me the microphone. Um, Jesus said, you know, I've fed the hungry, clothed the naked, and visited those who were in prison. That's it. That is a part of our community. Yeah. So, folks, we got to be about this. All right. This this is outstanding. Just leadership jlusa.org our very special guest uh deanna hoskins this will not we spend a little extra time here folks because we wanted to get this introduction but this will not be the the last time for not sure at all. Not at and all. you know if y'all and you know we do i do this show but everybody knows i do other stuff too so when it's time to get in the streets and go along the barricades y'all call me too all right and uh Hello. you know i give me an assignment i'm not afraid of it at all yeah i'm yeah, this is yeah i like this uh. <laughs> At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker engineering your success thank you for joining us deanna on make it plain thank you for having me thank you i appreciate it thanks for getting woke and listening to make it plain as always perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand and above all Give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.